Um, the, Doctor, I'll keep, I'll keep saying doctor, I'm going to give him a doctor's degree before it's over with, but do, Pastor Farley uh, in, in the book makes an interesting uh, point in, in the chapter that I want to talk to you about tonight that the most overlooked and obvious power for help in parenting you know, is the gospel. Now, even that can be cheapened you know, because uh, it, it's, it's popular now to have gospel everything, you know, uh, gospel this, gospel that, which you know, is all in good, uh, motivated by good things, but sometimes then you trivialize what the gospel is. But So we don't want to do that. But uh, the, the greatest help we find in parenting our children, we have in the gospel. And that's what distinguishes parenting in general uh, from Christian parenting. And we're going to talk about some of the differences between just parenting in general and a Christian view of parenting. Uh, but the gospel is the greatest resource we have for raising our children in the way that the Lord uh, would have us. And he references that, that verse that is the theme verse of the epistle to the Romans. And it's the one verse that has changed many lives. Uh, Romans 1.16, for the gospel is the power of God for salvation to whoever believes. And I think we can say without doing any damage to the scriptures that the gospel is the power of God for parenting. It is the power of God for everything in the Christian life. And so we want to unwind that this evening and talk about the specific ways the gospel uh, is the power uh, of God for parenting. But the first thing we need to do is let's define, and I need your help. I want you know, help from the audience here. Let's define what the word parenting means. What is parenting? And I wonder if anybody could you know, work up a definition of, of parenting. You know, what comes to your mind? What, if you were going to talk to an alien from another planet, you know, uh, and describe what parenting is or define it, what would, what would you say it is? Yeah, training up a child, okay. Yeah, and, and yeah, in the way he should go, like the, the Proverbs says, yeah. Which, I won't get off on this, but you know that's one of the most misused verses in all of Scripture. I won't go there, but it actually is. Yeah, yeah. But it is about raising children, and, and there you have a definition, training up a child. But what, what's another definition? When you're, what are you doing when you're parenting? Yeah, imparting something, yeah. All right, yeah, preparing, both of those words are important, preparing them for, and you could have said life, but you said battle, right? Because that's, from a Christian point of view, I mean, life is a battle. Yeah, preparing them for battle, yeah. Let me give you some representative definitions that are floating around in space. Uh, what is parenting? Uh, that, that source of all knowledge, Wikipedia, that's where I, no, I won't say it. Don't say it. Wikipedia is, it says that, uh, parenting is the process of raising a child from birth to adulthood. Now, I want you to, I'm going to give you three or four of these and just ask yourself, is there anything missing? So the first one is, it is a process of raising a child from birth to adulthood. The Ameri American Heritage Dictionary, which has been on my shelf for you know, 30 or 40 years, it says, it is the rearing of a child or children, especially the care, love, and guidance given by parents. 
you know, so far so good. But ask yourself, is there anything missing there? And then Merriam-Webster, the process of taking care of children, and I like this part, until they're old enough to take care of themselves. Now, what if I said to you that those definitions, you know, are, are correct to, to whatever degree they, um, that they express themselves, but they are totally inadequate for you and me as Christians. They are completely inadequate. And I wonder if anybody can guess what's missing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Because these might be appropriate for a teacher, for, for instance, or a coach even. Any authority could certainly do that, maybe should do that. But what's missing? Yeah, yeah. because they're coming from what we're going to call you know, a secular uh, database, a secular authority there's not any orientation to what? What's missing? You could say there's no spiritual emphasis, but there's something missing that's big. It's so big you can't even see it. Think about this. There's no reference to eternity. And here is one of the distinctives of Christian parenting. It's that we realize our children are going to live forever somewhere. See, and, and that, should, um, that should be very weighty. That, that should be something that we feel uh, on us in, in a good way, uh, this idea of, of eternity. Uh, believers will, will add to their definition of parenting the perspective of eternity. Their children will live forever somewhere, either uh, knowing the inexpressible love and, and grace of God in Christ Jesus in eternity or in a place of weeping and wailing and, and gnashing of teeth. So a Christian view of parenting always looks at eternity as the final destination. So that whatever I'm doing now impacts not just now, but it is in preparation for eternity. And without that eternal perspective, our parenting is going to be deficient. All right? So that, that's a very important distinctive. Uh, so we don't parent our children for this age only, but as uh, Farley says, we parent our children for the day of judgment. We're getting them ready for the day of judgment. Now, that's kind of an ominous thing, isn't it? That we're training up a child, we're investing our lives in them, we're, we're, we're uh, preparing them for the day of judgment. And that gives us, then, a very unique uh, perspective. The other thing that we think about, too, and, and this is really true for Carol and I, because I guess we're easily the oldest people in here, uh, it, it really is true for us, and, and that is that if you're thinking about eternity, you have, let's say you have a five-year-old, and you're thinking about eternity, the, the, the window of opportunity that you have to influence them is extremely small. Now, you know, when you're younger, you don't necessarily realize that because it, in, your, in your perception, time ticks off slower. And that, there's a reason for that. I'm sure that one of you scientists can figure out. But, you know, when you're younger, time ticks by slower. As you get older, it moves real fast. And, you know, it, it's, we were just talking a few minutes ago, or I was about, 
when our children were small. And, and we just, you know, Joe, our son, our second son, just had his birthday on Monday. And I started going, oh, wait a minute. That was 28 years ago. He's married. I mean, he's gone. And, and I remember the day of his birth in the Decatur General Hospital just like that and all the events surrounding that, his birth, a very unique uh, time in the life of our, our ministry as if it were yesterday. And it's, that's 28 years ago. I mean, it's a, you, I know you can't believe this. It was a blink. It, it was a blink as far as I'm concerned. And he's long gone, see. And, and Brooke, you know, she's, what, 23? Is it 23? I go track, 23? And, you know, is that right? Because the years just keep clicking by, you know. So the window that you have to influence them is extremely small. And the stakes are high. And that's just the way life is. So there should be, I mean, not a dread and, and not an unhealthy fear, but there should be a godly fear, a godly appreciation for how, how huge the task is of properly training our children and getting them ready for eternity, not for necessarily uh, the here and now. I want to give you two scriptures, and, and we're not going to turn to these, but we are going to turn to a different one in a minute. But, but just listen to how the scripture speaks of this, Ephesians 5, 16 making the most of your time because the days are evil. And the particular word that Paul uses that, that my translation rendered making most of is really better rendered redeeming the time. I mean, making up for lost time because it's going to go by, the days are evil, and the wheel of time is spinning ever quicker. And then think about 1 John two seventeen. The world, uh, John says, is passing away. You know, the sands of the hourglass are just you know, persistently, persistently dropping through and time is passing. So there's a short window and the ultimate objective is eternity. So let's, let's define parenting maybe more precisely and from a, a biblical perspective as that we're trying to transfer uh, a loyalty to Christ to the next generation. It is the transfer, as he says, of the baton of Christ's lordship to the next generation. And just like in that race in the Olympics, you've only got a few seconds to transfer that baton. See, And how often does Scripture speak of the Christian life as a race? And you've, if you've ever seen that transfer in the relays, you've got just a, a nanosecond to transfer that baton. And so in light of eternity, the time we have is very short, and we're trying to pass on the faith, the, the, the reign of Christ, the lordship of Christ, the, the, the beautiful gospel to our children in this blink of time uh, that we have with them. And so that's what separates a secular view of parenting from a Christian view of parenting, is that we're parenting for eternity, see. Now I want to show you something that you probably didn't expect to read when you came in here. Uh, Revelation 12, verse 11. Revelation 12, 11. As I was putting all this together, uh, I thought of this passage. I was prompted by something that uh, Farley said and, and just was, was, was moved to this passage. And it goes back to something Denise said when she defined parenting as, you know, preparing them for battle. Uh, look, if you will, at verse 11 of, of chapter 12 of, of the Revelation. Uh, of course, the Revelation is a book about the suffering church, and it's, it's eternally relevant. It was relevant to the seven historic churches in the first century, uh, 
that received the letter, and it's relevant to us. It tells the same story of suffering and the rise of powers, anti-Christian powers, and the church always under the burden of the attacks of the enemy. So its message is eternally valid. And in chapter 12, there's this line about the saints who are suffering and how do they overcome the hostile powers that are present in every generation. The cycle keeps repeating until Christ comes. And listen to this verse. And they overcame him, that is, the beast, that is, the, 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 the antichrist, the false prophet, or Satan himself. They overcame the arch enemy of their souls because of the blood of the Lamb, because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even to death. Now, I think that's the goal of parenting, that we will raise kids who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb they're holding on to the word of their testimony, which is not their testimony, but the testimony that's in their hearts, the gospel. They're holding on to the gospel, and they do not love their lives even if they die. They are willing to die for Christ. Now, that's the kind of children we want to raise uh, that, that can stand up to the beast you know, the, to the accuser of the brethren, and they know the cleansing power of Christ's blood, and they believe the gospel, and they come in here on Sunday, and they confess the faith once for all delivered to the saints, and they believe it, and they are willing to lose everything for the sake of Christ. Now, that's the goal of parenting right there. You can claim this verse. That's the target. We want to raise children that look like this when they're adults, that will hold on to Christ and not be seduced by the powers that be. So parenting has to be understood within this framework of this cosmic battle that's going on now. It began in the Garden of Eden. It will be consummated when the New Jerusalem comes. And in between, you've got four phases, creation, fall, redemption, consummation. And parenting happens in this storyline, those four acts. So parenting is always about eternity, creation, fall, redemption, consummation in Christ. And we're raising kids in the progress of this story. And if you see that and believe that, then your parenting is going to take on a different shape than maybe your pagan neighbors. So parenting needs to be defined carefully if we're Christians, and, and of course we are. He, he says here, by the way, to kind of link back to something we talked about at the very first session, parenting is the process of transferring our worldview to the next generation, our biblical worldview and all that, that it entails uh, to the next generation. So parenting is a huge, huge, huge thing. And can I just do a timeout now and just maybe talk philosophy just for a second? I mean, church philosophy. It's on my heart because I just read a blog post on it, you know, as I'm prone to do sometimes. Um, but th there's, there's a reason that we have, uh, when, when children turn four, we, we want them to come in here. And there's a reason for that. Uh, even, you know, even though they squirm and, and you know, uh, sometimes a deacon's child needs to be extracted from the congregation. You know, <laughs> but that was so funny on Sunday. It wasn't funny for you. It wasn't funny for you. But... Uh, and the reason that, that I, I always laugh and delight in that is because th this is a training ground, see? And we want those little four-year-old 
children in here um, because we're training them to worship God. And we're a family, see? We're a covenant family. We're training them to worship God. And uh, that, that's part of the church's parenting function with a covenant child. We're joining the parents and we're saying, we're going to help you as you teach your children to worship with us and we're going to welcome them and we're not going to be upset if they have to be taken out and introduced to uh, you know dad's rod or something like my maybe you know I got dad's belt Uh, of course I was almost perfect so it only happened one time but um, you know it's it's a beautiful thing uh, because again we're, we're we're all together trying to prepare the next generation for Eternity, And so that, that's why we want the children hearing the sermon, even though it will be over their head, they're, they're getting the vocabulary of the faith in their minds. They're, they're learning the language of Zion. They're hearing us sing hymns, you see. And they're watching mom and dad worship. And they're listening to a sermon. And they may be coloring and, and, and thinking about what, you know, I get little drawings sometimes of the sermon that are just wonderful. And it's one of the greatest compliments I could ever get as a child says, hey, Pastor Mike, I drew this, and this is Mary, and this is Jesus, and, you know, whatever it is, you know. Uh, but th- that's why we do what we do. That, that's why there's not a children's church, see. Uh, if anybody ever asks, it's because we, it's about eternity, see, and we, we want them to learn by observing us worship God. And that's kind of an aside, but it just makes the point that the stakes are extremely high, see, in parenting. So what do, what do you think about that definition? Any comments so far about the sort of the ominous, ominous responsibility we have, you know, uh, of, of, raising, of raising our children and in view of eternity? <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah, that's a great insight. And, you know, we would probably say that the foundation for that goes back to the Decalogue, that you honor your father and mother. And there, there's a lifelong commitment to honoring their, their wisdom and their authority, even though you're going to be off on your own making your own decisions. You're still going to look back and appreciate their wisdom, maybe seek their advice, and then you're going to take care of them when they, when they need you. And so the parents are always going to be, you know, all things considered equal, the parents are always going to have some influence over the children. And, uh, and we were talking the other day, maybe it was yesterday, uh, I will never be one-tenth as smart or as wise as my parents, ever. I'll never catch them. I'll never catch them. And the, the joy I have as a person approaching 60 to call my dad and bounce something off of him is just an amazing blessing. And, and I know that I'm responsible for what I do, but knowing that I can turn to a man that I think is the wisest man on this planet and let him speak truth into me. So that's what you're talking about. He's still parenting his, you know, his very hard-headed son is what he's doing. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, 
Yeah. That's, that's huge, yeah. So, and that's the mother's role would be, you know, not only as she has opportunity to lead them, and she's going to have more opportunity, you know, given the way the family's uh, structured, she's going to have more time with them as dad is the provider. Uh, but, you know, like you said, kind of setting the table for his leadership and, you know, directing the children to, you know, really honor and, and, and respect him, you know, that, that's her burden is to, set the table so that they'll honor their father and, and, and love him. And I, I was raised by a mother who did that. Now, sometimes it looked like this, wait till your dad gets home, you know. And I knew what that meant, you know. Uh, and, and, but, but my mom, uh, when I was in the home, my mom, um, she made me feel like she treasured my father and loved him and, and that he was the spiritual leader. Uh, and, and so that was just inculcated into me. So I you know, I think you're hitting on what the primary responsibility is. Uh, and we're going to talk about that in a second, actually, as a mark of, the, of, a, of a distinction, that, that we are patriarchal, and we don't need to be afraid of that word. We, the, the Scripture presents a patriarchal faith, and uh, you know, that, that's an anathema word to modern people, but it, it's a good word if, if we define it properly. But you're right. It's, the mother needs to do that. And that's the greatest thing she can do is love her husband and, you know, make him appear to be, treat him as if he is the spiritual leader of the family. With, you know, that's what Paul says in, in Ephesians 5. He tells the husband to love the wife. He doesn't tell the wife to love the husband. He tells the wife to respect the husband. It's really, now she should love him, right? But if his role is headship, her role is to follow submission. What that looks like is respect. That's the word at the end of the paragraph. Paul says, see that the wife respect the husband. And I think that's what you're talking about. That's good. Yeah. Let me, let me go through then uh, some of these. Um, oh, I've got to do one other thing. He makes a point here uh, that Christians need to avoid a common mistake about parenting. And I think this is, this is worth the price of admission, what uh, Farley brings up. When we, talk about, when we talk about successful parenting as Christians, we are not talking about morality, about the production of morality. And, and I want to work with you on this. Uh, it may be counterintuitive to us, but he says the primary focus of Christian parenting is not morality. And he puts it another way. Ending up with well-behaved children is not the ultimate aim of our parenting. Now, that's the ultimate aim of everybody else's parenting. And what's defined as well-behaved is they fit in with society. They're thought well of. You know, they're respected. They're, they're not oddballs, you know. Uh, and that is not the goal of Christian parenting, the production of morality. And he says it well, and I want to get the quote exactly right. Um, he says, while... Moral virtue and morality is important. Such behavior, that is moral behavior, follows faith. It doesn't produce faith in Christ. And there's, there's the difference. He says that uh, genuine faith in Christ, which is the purpose of parenting, to get them ready for eternity, he says uh, that is a deeply rooted truth in the child's heart which is the supreme goal so we want them to know christ see but if if morality is the aim you're going to go off the wrong direction every time 
you will. And there are, there are several directions you can go into. I can mention, I'll make two or three of them. You know, one is what, what we would call, uh, you, you could call it legalism, uh, where it's all about the performance and there's nothing in the heart. It's just performance. There's no relationship with Christ. There's no lordship of Christ. Uh, it's just that I'm crossing my T's, dotting my I's. And, but there's no spiritual reality. And we don't want children that look like that. Uh, you know, the other side of the fence is that word we sometimes use in the context of our theology. It's kind of an intimidating word. Uh, I was trying to think of a good synonym. Well, maybe a good synonym is licentiousness. But it's the word antinomianism against the lawism. And that's the person who says, hey, do what you want to do. You know, doesn't matter what you do. You know, God loves to forgive. I love to sin. It's a great deal, you know. So a focus on morality either, you know, drives the kids into uh, licentiousness because they've had it with the parents' rules, or it turns them into legalists. So if, if morality is the goal, then the destination will, will be missed. So the goal isn't moralism. Uh, you know, the goal is that they will know and love Christ and be prepared for uh, eternity. Here's an interesting quote. It's on page uh, 42 if you have the book. A cloak of morality over an unrepentant heart can make it difficult to discern the child's true spiritual condition. So again, well-behaved children, that's not the goal. Now, we think that there will be the transformative power of Christ in them, and they will become in practice what they are in position in Christ. You know, the, the faith will be worked out. They will learn love and learn respect and learn good behavior. But that's not the goal. Christ is the goal, you see? So it isn't about morality. Uh, and uh, I think that if you will, you know, when I give illustrations, I'm, I'm not picking on anybody. I'm certainly not thinking about any of you when I give an illustration. So if, if what I say is true of you, it's completely accidental. It's not meant as an insult or anything. But I think this fuels the bumper stickers on the back of our cars about how good our kids are, see. It's because we're, it's, it's about behavior. It's about, oh, he made A's. He made, you know, you know my, my kid can beat up your kid. Or, you know, what was a bumper sticker? And they, I kept saying, my kid is a straight A kid. And then, yeah, yeah, my, my kid can beat up your honor student, you know. <laughs> but that's what fuels it. It's that, you know, the, the goal is good behavior. You know, good behavior, well-respected family, you know. And, and for parents, it's not. For Christian parents, it's not. It, it's the lordship of Christ, that they will know Christ and be prepared for eternity. And we hope they'll be well-behaved along the way, you know. But it's Christ. Now, having said that, um, it's, it's also interesting that there are very few scriptures about parenting in the Bible. Have you noticed that? Anybody look for them? You won't find hardly any about parenting. I'm going to give you just four and then tell you why that's the case. Uh, the, the two from the New Testament that come to mind in Ephesians 6, 4, fathers do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. There's one. And then the passage, the complementary passage in Colossians 3.21, fathers do not exasperate your children and cause them to lose heart. And so both passages in the New Testament that speak of parenting talk to the dad about his discipline. And then you can think about maybe two in the old. Uh, one is from Isaiah 59, 21. Uh, the, the prophet speaking 
on behalf of the Lord says, My words shall not depart from your mouth or out of the mouths of your offspring. See, so there's the idea that the children will know, the offspring will know the word of the Lord. And then Malachi 2.15 asks this question, What is the one God seeking? Answer, godly offspring. And you don't have very many other scriptures about parenting than those. Now, let me ask you, why? If, you know, if parenting is for eternity, and if the stakes are so high, and it's such an ominous responsibility, wouldn't you think that the Scripture would just be, just be full of one parenting verse after the next? But why is it not there? You got it. Bingo. You got it. The whole Scripture is about that. Yeah. All of Scripture is about that. And it is, it is no accident that God has revealed himself to us as Father. See, uh, you know, one little adjustment in our thinking, and, and I bring this up every chance I think of it, uh, we often say that God is like a father, but that is exactly backwards. You see, God is the archetype father. He's the first father. And every father after him is like him in some way. See, he's the, he's the father. He has revealed himself as a father to us. So the whole scripture is about this. You can just pick any scripture you want, virtually, and in some way it's going to speak to the responsibility of parents. So the whole story, creation, fall, redemption, consummation, is about parenting. That's why. Uh, so the whole Bible is our textbook. And so having said that, then let's talk about some of the ways that the gospel, this story, this great drama we're in, helps us as parents. And he, he has seven of them, and we're not going to get through all those tonight. And I'll just trust you to buy the book and read it. He'll say it a lot better than I can. Uh, I want to pick a few of them and, and bounce them off of you. And, and the first is this one. In, in the context of this grand story that, that informs and shapes our parenting, we learn to pass on the fear of God. And he lists that as number one in parenting. In other words, the gospel story that unfolds from Genesis to maps, as the country preacher said, all the way to the last book of the Bible, you know, that story, that story teaches us as parents to inculcate in our children the fear of God. Now, that is absolutely absent in secular parenting. There's no perspective on eternity, see. There, there's no ultimate transcendent holy authority over us. But Christian parenting is about inculcating the fear of God. And it happens because the parents fear God, and they pass that fear to their children. And I did a search, this was actually a couple of weeks ago when the class started, about all the times the Scripture tells us to fear God. And you ought to do that. You ought to just get your computer program out and just find every verse where we're commanded to fear God. And I don't have time to give them all to you tonight, but think about Psalm 111.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And that's the consistent message uh, of Scripture, that we're to, we're to fear the Lord, and if we don't do anything else in parenting, we're to teach our children to fear the Lord. Now, that begs the question, what is the fear of God? What, what does it mean to fear the Lord? Now, it's not a trick question at all, but I just wonder, you know, when we say fear the Lord, what, 
Yeah, okay, it's the opposite. And when you say fear man, you mean, okay, yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking past humanity and the threat that humanity might bear against me or their opinion of me. And I'm, not, I'm disrespecting, in one sense, that authority and respecting a higher authority. Because fear, in this sense, is, is used in the sense of ultimate respect. It isn't a cowering fear, necessarily. It is a fear of awe and respect. And, boy, is that missing in parenting. I mean, you know, across the, across the fruited plains. It's because... It, it implies that the child is under an authority and they're conforming their behavior, you know, and they're thinking, um, you know, in line with the fact that they are not in charge. It's not about the child. So we teach them to fear God. And that has to be first uh, played out in the lives of the parents as they, as they fear the Lord. Now, so let me ask you this question then. Okay, so in practical terms, practical parental terms, what does the fear of God in the life of the child look like? How would you know that your children are fearing the Lord? Do what? Yeah, they're going to respect their parents and obey them. Any other uh, evidences of fear of God? Yeah, an interest in his business, right? What concerns his kingdom. Yeah. So that's the, that's the fear of the Lord. That's the beginning of wisdom. And so the gospel story helps us fear God, this awesome God who's loved us and saved us. And we're trying to pass that on to the children, a healthy respect for God. Um, and, you know, uh, another, another thing that hits me just off the top of the head here. Um, yeah, I'm very interested in um, the church and the worship of the church. And um, occasionally, you know, you'll have a, and again, this is not related to anything in, in our congregation. I'm just thinking back past 30-something years of ministry. And you get the frantic, I had this happen actually in our second church. It's the one I spoke, spoke about Sunday, that church, uh, which didn't last long. I wasn't there very long. <laughs> but... But I had a frantic mother uh, come into my office, and uh, you know her son was going off to college, and he didn't love Christ. And she said to me, "You got to do something." He said, "I go off to college, and he doesn't love Christ." And what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And I began to probe her life and her family, and they were—they they hardly ever came to church. They—they they were nominal Christians. And now she's in a panic. She wants me to fix Junior before he goes off to college. And, you know, there wasn't much I could do. Um, I'll pray for you. I'll, I'll meet with him. He's probably not going to learn from me everything he should have learned from you. I didn't say that, but that's what I was thinking. And so it drives me to say that, that the, the greatest way we can um, produce that godly fear is by doing those things in our own lives that indicate we fear and love the Lord and are under his authority and love his church and love his word and love to worship him and that we consider the, we consider the worship of God the highest priority and privilege.
that we value the worship of God with God's people. And that's where it, it starts. And so anyway, you can work further on that and think about that. The second thing he, he uh, mentions, and again, I won't uh, belabor this point. He talks about that in, in gospel-driven parenting, we lead by example because our Lord taught us by example. He not only died on the cross for us, right? But remember John 13? He washes the disciples' feet, and there he says, Now what I've done to you, now you go do to others. And so parents lead by example. The, the, the Lord who sacrifices himself for us, then that's the, the model for, for what we do. And, and kind of to go a little bit further on that, he makes the point that marriage has been designed by God to proclaim and to illustrate this gospel, to exemplify this gospel. And think about the ways marriage uh, exemplifies the gospel. And I'll speak of my own marriage. Through sin and forgiveness and love and reconciliation. And that's being played out in the home, and the children are watching that rhythm of the gospel. No home is perfect. Every home is filled with sin. There's always opportunities to forgive and to confess and repent. And that rhythm of sin and forgiveness and love and restoration plays out over and over again in the home. And by example, the children learn what the gospel is. Hey, mom and dad are sinners. Yeah, they sin against each other. But they repent, and they grant forgiveness, and they are reconciled. And they do that with their friends. And they see this rhythm of the gospel playing out, and they go, wow, so that's what the gospel is. And so we lead by uh, example. Think about this. When we properly apprehend the love of God for us, it produces some things in us, and maybe the first is humility. And so we begin to exemplify humility and then long-suffering um, and these other Christian graces that can only be born in the crucible of the gospel. And the children learn the truth of the gospel because they see it in the lives of the parents. So in Christian parenting, it's by example. See, it's by example. It isn't as I told you so. It's, you know, I'm going to walk my talk in front of you. You know. Then let me uh, mention a third one. Um, and, and I want to go back to This is something Denise said, and I'll work with this for a couple of minutes. The gospel uh, makes the difference of uh, highlighting the, the significance, and maybe you should say the cruciality of the male servant leadership so I said we're patriarchal and he mentions this Christianity is a patriarchal religion so by properly embracing the God-given roles of man and woman or husband and wife then the children will grow up with healthy examples of what a man is and what a woman is he, he says God's plan is biblical masculinity men who are loving spiritual leaders in their homes and servants of Christ and of their families. And you don't, you don't need me to cite the statistics, but strong spiritual fatherly leadership is absolutely essential to the spiritual, emotional, and even physical well-being of children. And our prisons are full of young men and young women who don't have fathers, functionally speaking. Uh, so the Bible has the answer for that. The Bible makes men, turns us into men. The scripture, the gospel turns men into men. See, uh, the gospel builds fathers who lead, who take responsibility. And that's the difference in Christian parenting. 
And so we need to think about that. How can I as a father lead better and serve better, love better, and, and sacrifice better? And let me, you know, I'm always hesitant to do this because the last thing I want to do as a pastor, because I had it done to me, is to lay in your lap a false guilt trip. So I'm not going to do that. I've had enough of those through my life, and, and I, I, I just reel at the idea of a false guilt trip. But in my hard-headedness, and uh, I, I have progressed probably more slowly than anybody in this room and maybe even in, in the world in learning uh, how to be what I should be, but uh, it's finally coming to fruition uh, in my old hard heart that servant leadership begins on your knees praying for your family. It starts on your knees. And you fight the battle of prayer for your wife and your children. And, and the Lord uh, changes us when we pray. When we immerse ourselves in his word and we pray, he turns us into men. And it's not what we think men are. It's a far cry from Hollywood or Madison Avenue or um, Research Park even. Um, it, is, it is a different kind of masculinity uh, but it begins on our knees with Bible open, uh, praying. And then that's where we learn to love our, our wives and love our children. And it's where God gives us wisdom. And maybe it starts there uh, that we're returned in uh, to godly men. So strong, strong men. Uh, a fourth one he mentions, and this one, I wanted to ask you about this one. Because if you read the book, you might, you might push back a little bit at this point. But he talks about discipline. The gospel motivates us to discipline our children. Well, so far, so good. Um, because we know that the application of loving discipline has a lot of good uh, consequences. And he mentions a couple. One of the ones he mentions is when we practice discipline, we're teaching our children, and quote, he says, the horror of sin. So discipline teaches the child that sin is a bad thing. It teaches the child the consequences of their disobedience. It teaches the child the value of God's holiness and teaches them to submit to the rule of God. Okay, so far so good. Probably nobody disagrees with that. That by discipline, we're teaching holiness and we're teaching the, the consequences of their wrong actions. Uh, so if we don't give them consequences, then there can be no advancement in character, you see. And that's why throughout Scripture, the Lord never, he never pulls the punches, see, when disobedience gets dealt with in the Bible. And, you know, Paul, uh, even though it's not attributable in Paul to some sin, and we have to be careful about doing that, he talks about his thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan sent to buffet me, to keep me from exalting myself, to squash his pride. And the Lord would not take it away. Because that pain was making him holy. And when we shield our children from pain and the consequences of their choices, we are not helping them be holy. And that will be the hardest thing for you to embrace emotionally because we all want to rescue our children. And you can't do that. We, we can't do that. Now, here's, here's what he says, and I just wanted to get your reaction to this. Uh, he says, the gospel teaches us how to discipline them. And if you've read the book, he mentions that we discipline with consistency. And then the, he, here's how he applies that. And again, this is, you know, just, just throw, throw it out there because it's in the book and not, not aiming it at anybody or anything. But he, he would tell us that 
that we should expect our children to obey the first time and then make them very uncomfortable when they don't do it. In other words, don't start counting. See, you know, all right, little Johnny, I'm going to count to five, and if you don't clean up that mess, he says don't count. You tell them one time. And then if they don't do it, the consequence comes. Because he says if, when you delay, you are teaching them that the line can move. The line of authority can move. And by clever manipulation, they can move it even a little bit further. And he's going to suggest, and, and I think that's what we're going to find here in uh, Withhold Not Correction, that book, that while all of your lost neighbors will think you're out of your mind, you should expect immediate compliance for their own good and train them that your word means what it means because that's how the Lord is, see? Because your word is the word of the Lord to your, parent, to your children. Think about that. Your word is the word of the Lord to your children. And, you know, I'm not asking you to embrace this. I'm asking you to think about it and think about applying it. And, and is there some value here? And, and, and I, I, I began, and I, you know, I, I think I was the biggest counter of all. I don't know. I may have even gotten to like 100 sometimes, you know. Uh, uh, but I, I was thinking about my own upbringing, and I never got, there was never a countdown. You know, and maybe, again, going back to my thesis that my parents are so smarter than I'll ever be. <laughs> I'll never catch up with them. But I remember uh, that from my father and my dad. I remember my granddaddy Hayes in Holly Pond. When granddaddy Hayes said something, he ain't going to count, buddy. You know, uh, you, you do, because you respect his word. That's not a movable line. His authority isn't wishy-washy. When he said, you know, don't go out there and play in the cotton field. That meant don't go play in the cotton field. See? And so I look back and I'm learning to respond quickly to God's authority. So think about that. About the consistency of, I'm going to say it one time. You get one strike. And then there's going to be consequences if you don't do it. So think about that. I think there's something to it that we should recapture, huh? Yeah, and we don't. Yeah. You get no, that's why I say you will get no help here from your friends. In fact, uh, uh, years ago when I was serving, we were serving in Pensacola, one of our members was a circuit judge. He was a deeply committed Christian. And uh, a, a case came before his court of a mom, you know, in, in line at the grocery store. And little Johnny has a temper tantrum and mama whoops his backside, and mama gets arrested. Now, that's the culture we're in, and worse. So you're going to get no help here. You're really going to be swimming upstream if you... And again, this isn't harsh. I mean, you don't do it in a harsh spirit, but it's just very clear. It's very consistent. You know, this is what dad asks you to do, and if you don't do it, here's what's going to happen. And then it happens. And that child is learning to love and honor God. But I, I really am sympathetic because uh, I think probably you know, we didn't get a lot of encouragement either that way. I mean, we were the, you know, under the influence. And I think there's, a, there's maybe a, a side that says that uh, you're, you're trying to also show grace, you know, by giving a countdown. I mean, I can hear that argument and, and some legitimacy there. But just 
it's challenged me again to think about that. And that your word is the word of the Lord. And you don't want them trivializing that word. But you'll be on an island, except maybe with all your other Christian friends who are trying to, <laughs> trying to parent this way. But I, I think that's important. And then he says that parent, that discipline must involve pain. I mean, both physical and psychological. To break the child's self-will and to earn the child's fear and respect. So don't let, you know, those who, who are spouting the psychobabble and all the therapeutic stuff tell you that pain is bad for your child. No. Spare the rod and you wreck the child. Um, and then you do it with true affection. He says that after the pain of discipline, there's the, the warmth of physical affection. And I remember as a boy uh, getting the business end of my father's belt and then a, a long hug from my dad. And uh, this is what he's talking about here, is that it, this isn't harsh, it's not um, angry. Uh, it breaks the heart of the parent to do that. And I knew that. I knew it broke my dad's heart. But it, he loved me. Um, and so we, we discipline because discipline is a good thing. Think about the scripture that says the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. And he brings pain into our lives to break our will. And that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. So think about, think about that in your family. Then, uh, yeah, any other questions on that point? We've got about two minutes, but any other questions on that point? Something? Yeah. Eternity's in the balance. I mean, it, it really is. And, or, and, and at least their spiritual well-being, if, if they're, they're, they're children who know the Lord, their spiritual well-being, their, their, their health as a, as a Christian is, is in the balance. That's right. Well, we're going to go see our kids in a second, but I want to give, give you the last one, which is the best. For me, it was the best one. Um, and he, he ends it by saying the gospel is the solution for inadequate parents. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and boy, is that good news. Uh, our parenting is always inadequate. It always is. Um, you know, they say the older you get, the more you become an archaeologist. You're always digging around in your past. And, um, and that, I, that's, I'm in that stage now of doing that and going, wow, man, I wish I knew then what I know now about raising kids because I sure made a lot of mistakes. But he's, he's telling us that... Um, there are no perfect parents. There are no parents that are totally adequate. And the, the gospel makes up for that. I, I remember um, years ago, this was when uh, maybe James Dobson was on the radio. It may have even been his program, but there was a panel discussion about parenting. And I, was, I remember where I was. I'd make, make a hospital visit to Birmingham, and I was listening to the program, and 
one of the authorities was, I think it was, it may have been Jay Adams, but it was somebody of that magnitude who said, who said, you're going you're gonna to mess up royally as a parent. You are. Just welcome to the party. But if you love the Lord and you love your children, that will make up for most of what you do wrong. And there was just a wave of hope over me that, you know, I'm not the sharpest pencil in the box. I don't have the greatest wisdom. But, Lord, help me love my children. Help me love you. And let love cover a multitude of sins. So gospel-driven parents are always going to the cross for help, see. And he will help us. You know, when we cry to him for help, he will be there. Uh, so we make our mistakes loving Christ and depending on him. And we're going to get a lot wrong, but he is going to bless us. And we love our children. He is going to take that and, and change them. Um, and um, we, we see that in our lives as we think back. Those of you that have had good, loving parents, you, you can idolize them. You know they weren't perfect, but you remember all the great things they taught you. And, and they did that in the midst of a lot of failure. A lot of things they would tell you that they, they didn't do right, and yet you turned out okay, and the Lord blessed. And so the, the hope in parenting, in our imperfect parenting, is this awesome, sovereign God who, who loves us and who showers his blessing on his children. So it's, it's, uh, it's a reason to hope. It's hard, but the gospel gives us strength. I hope this has uh, encouraged you some and helped you a little bit. Uh, thank you so much for being a part of this. I, I pray that it will bear fruit and, and maybe we'll build on this. I, I would love to keep going in this book. There's so much more to talk about. Uh, and we'll, we'll see how things develop in uh, the course of the, the years that follow and, and reach out more to our parents and maybe get feedback from you on things you'd like to talk about. Uh, as we maybe do more of these. But thank you. Thank you so much for being here uh, this month. And uh, let me dismiss us in prayer, and we'll run over and see what they're going to do for us. Surprises await, so let's pray.